Lately, I've been watching a uh, show. I've been binge watching a show. It ended in 2016 after seven seasons and it's titled Dual Survival. Now the premise of this reality show is they take two men. One is a naturalist expert, all right? Uh, they, they literally go out, these guys, and live in wilderness and in desert areas for months on end by themselves because they think it's fun. They make their own fire, they find their own food, like this is, this is what they do. And then they, they pair up this natural survivalist with a special forces veteran. And those two guys get dropped off in an area and they've got 72 hours to survive and find their way out to rescue. Now, what's so intriguing about it is that these two men have very different opinions as to how to do things. Different opinions on how to make fire, different opinions on how to survive, how to live, how to make it out. How they, I mean, they are butting heads all the time with their differing views and opinions and backgrounds as how to survive. One being a naturalist living in the woods all the time and one being a special forces veteran. And I was watching an episode this past week where they were dropped off at high altitude in the Himalayan mountains by themselves, and they've got to figure a way to survive and get out. Now, what made it so difficult is that because of the elevation that they, where they were at and because of the, the, the humidity in the air, they were not able to start a fire. So they're up in the Himalayan mountains. They can't start a fire, which means they can't get water. They can't cook food. Um, and this goes on for two days. No food, no water, uh, below freezing temperatures at night, and their bodies are beginning to shake, which means they're on the verge of hypothermia. And these two men have to make a decision. How do we survive? Our mission is to survive and then escape and, and be rescued. How do we survive in this moment? No food, no water, freezing temperatures. How do we survive? These two studly, manly men decide we've got to get our body temperatures up. So they get in a, right up next to a crevice of a rock so that their body heat that they had could radiate off the rock. And they brought leaves and, and big, huge branches and they pull them up closely, and these two men cuddle together under these leaves and under these branches, cuddling and holding each other all night long in order to survive. I find this very interesting, because in that moment, what mattered were the essentials. Now, they had all kinds of differing opinions as to how to make fire and how to hunt and, and how to purify water and how to climb a tree. I mean, they got differing opinions on how to climb a tree. They'll argue about that. And one of them's like, I, I did this in the Special Forces. One's like, I do this every day. So they're, they're arguing about all this stuff. But in that moment where hypothermia is setting in, what mattered were the essentials. How do we get our bodies warm? And these guys did whatever they had to do to fulfill their task of surviving, life and purpose, completing their mission, 
They did whatever they had to do in unity to save their lives. I find this to be such a wonderful illustration of how the church must act in unity. We have all kinds of differing opinions on how we think things ought to be. Brother James teased last week that the, the guy in our video wore that cap and it obviously wasn't cold because he had short sleeve shirts on. That was just a style choice for some of you. Now, some of you may think, well, that is stupid. You've got every right in that opinion to think it's stupid. We disagree on all kinds of things. We have differing opinions on all kinds of things. A whole host of, of things that we think ought to be done this way or, or how things should be viewed here, or how we should do things and, and what we should think about things. But when it really comes down to what unites us, it is the essentials that are of utmost importance. Not only for our survival, but for our thriving as a witness in the reality of Jesus Christ. The truth is, God doesn't so much care about your opinions and the differences we have between each other. What he cares most about are the essentials of our faith that unites us together. In fact, I know this to be true because Jesus prays for it. He prays for it. The night before he was to be crucified, he was praying that his people would be one. So let us look at this portion of Jesus' high priestly prayer. Let us look at Jesus praying for us today. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. One of my favorite preachers today is a man by the name of Charlie Dates. And Charlie Dates will say on occasion, I wish I could preach this as much as I feel it. Today, I certainly wish I could preach this as much as I feel it. And I don't know that I can. But I trust that God's word can do what it is being sent out to accomplish this morning. John chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus is praying, and he's praying to the Father, and he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. I have three main points that I want to address from this text. A lot of things to say about those three points, but I want to start with this first observation, Jesus is praying in John 17. And up to this point, he has specifically been praying for the disciples, his future apostles. Here in verse 20, though, he changes the specific focus. 
He's no longer just praying for the 12 apostles. He now begins to pray for all future believers. Not that we can't take all kinds of stuff from what he prays specifically about the disciples from, but he, he's praying for now all b- believers. There is this change in direct focus. He prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now this phrase tells us a few things. One, Jesus knew that the failure of the disciples was only temporary. What was going to happen this night? Oh, they were going to fail miserably. What was going to happen the next day? Oh, they were going to fail miserably. We like to focus on Peter, right? His denial. But the truth is, they all ran away because they were scared. The truth is, they all fled and hid because they were scared. But that would not be for very long. Jesus knew that these disciples, their failure was only temporary and they in fact would step back up and be the men that God had, God had called them to be. And Jesus knew that was going to happen because he was praying for that to happen. Jesus knew these men that are going to fail me tonight and fail me tomorrow, these men will be the means by which the world comes to hear about me. Second thing that I can look at from this phrase and and something that jumps out at me is that the ministry of the disciples was going to be successful. Not only was their failure going to be temporary, it's going to be successful. They would be a witness to the world. The Great Commission would be completed. You say, Neil, how do you know the Great Commission's been completed? Have you heard the gospel? The Great Commission's been completed. Do you know when Jesus tells the disciples, you will be witnesses to me, both in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. When Jesus says that, guess who are the uttermost parts of the world? You. You are the the uttermost parts of the world that Jesus tells the disciples to go and preach the gospel to. See, the ministry of the apostles has been a success. It will continue to be a success. The third thing I want to point out about this phrase is that it tells us that Jesus is praying for us. I titled this point, Jesus prayed for the reality of our unity, our unity. When Jesus changes here and he begins praying for future disciples, he is praying for us. He's referring to people in this room. We are those who have believed because of the the apostles' word. When Jesus prays this prayer, this is one of those things that I wish I could preach it the way I feel it. When Jesus prays this prayer, he is thinking of us in this moment. Let that sit in on you, sink on you, weigh heavy on you. Jesus is praying for you right here. Man, he is praying for me. Jesus knew who these future disciples would be. He knew them by name. The Father had given them to him. And he is praying for us. He knew who he was going to die for. And he is praying for them. And number four, Jesus went to the cross to save sinners, not just to make people savable. 
Jesus was not dying in just some general salvific way. I'll just die and see what happens. I hope some people believe one day. Jesus took names to the cross, church. He took names to the cross. He knew who they were. He took your name, Christian, to the cross. Jesus was about to die for you the next day. He's praying for you in this moment. He knew who Neil Sandlin was. And he prayed for me. He prayed for Calvary Hill Baptist Church that we would be one. There's another phrase I want to focus on under this point. And it's in verse 21. It says that they may all be one. When Jesus prays this prayer, I cannot help but think that he is looking forward to the future. He's looking forward and he's envisioning what Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 and 10 says. It says, after this I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation and all the tribes and the peoples and the languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they're crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. As Jesus prays this prayer that they will all be one, I cannot help but he's thinking into the future and he says one day people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue is going to be around the throne and they're going to be worshiping and singing salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for the people in this room and he's praying that we would be one. That we would be a present manifestation of Revelation chapter 7. So Jesus here begins by praying for the reality of our unity. The second thing he prays for is he prays for the reasons for our unity. He prays for the reasons for our unity. First, Jesus is praying that our unity would be based upon what the apostles taught in, from the word. Now, this is what it says. It says, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. What word did the disciples or the apostles preach? The gospel. That was the word they were commissioned to preach. They were to go and preach the gospel. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe. Jesus has brought the good news. He is the good news. Believe in him. They brought, their word was the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, listen, our unity is going to be based on the gospel. What has been handed down from scripture by the apostles, that is the basis of our unity. This means, church, that it is not based on anything less than the gospel. If our unity is based on the gospel, it is not based on anything less than the gospel. Do I need to give illustrations? I don't think I do. Everything is less than the gospel. If we believe the gospel, we are one. If the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is believed, we are one. 
we may have a whole host of other disagreements, even theological disagreements. They do not make us one. They do not divide us. It is the gospel and the supremacy of the gospel that unites us. One of my favorite New Testament theologians, his name is D.A. Carson. He says it this way, that this unity is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator. Whoa. Here's what he's saying. Our unity is not achieved by us looking at things, hunting enthusiastically for things lower than the gospel that we can disagree with so we can cause disunity. He says it's not that, but it is by adherence to the apostles' gospel, period. If we believe the apostles' gospel, then that is what unites us. And nothing less than that should divide us, should cause us to have disunity. You say, but Neil, I disagree with this and this. I don't care. I don't. We can sit down and we can talk about it. We can discuss it. We may have to leave saying we agree to disagree, but I love you because of the gospel. We are one because of the gospel. There is no one I disagree with more on this planet than the woman I live with. It's true. Me and we don't see the world at all the same way. It's crazy. You know who I love most in this world? My wife. You know why? Because we have an understanding that the covenant that we made overrides everything else. So when she says to me, Neil, how many times are you going to walk by that dish before you put it in the dishwasher? And my response is, I never even saw it. That's not a lie. Never saw it. Wasn't looking for dishes. Was thinking about something else. And she's like, and she'll look at me and she'll say, I don't, I don't understand. And I'll look at her and say, I don't either. I don't know why I don't see that dish. It's not that I don't want to wash it for you. I just don't see it. Or she'll get some new decoration. She'll put it in the house. She said, have you noticed this? And I'll say, no. She said, it's been here for two years, Neil. <laughs> and I'll be like, wait, what? No, you're lying. You put that up last week. She'll look at me and just be like, I don't understand. <laughs> this goes on every day, guys. I'm not lying. This is every day. This is something that her and I could fight about every day. We could. If we wanted to, her and I could fight about something every day because we don't see the world the same way. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because our covenant is supreme over all that. And in the same way, church, we could find all kinds of things to fight about, argue about, and bicker about if we wanted to. But the truth is, at the end of the day, the gospel is supreme over all that. And our unity is supreme over all that because of the gospel. Second reason for our unity, Jesus says in verse 21, he says, just as, I, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so also they must be in us. This is repeated in verse, at the end of verse 22 and the beginning of verse 23. 
Now, what is all this about? I'm not going to lie to you. This is difficult. This is hard to understand exactly what Jesus is talking about here. I mean, he says, just as Father, you are in me and I am in you, I want them to be in us. What? What does that mean? Well, let me point out a few things for us to think about. This is in no way some deep theological, um, exhaustive understanding of this. But I want to just point out a few things that I think can be helpful. The Father and the Son are distinct persons, are they not? The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. They are distinct persons. Yet at the same time, they are one. Of course they are one in their divinity. Okay? That's true to both God. But they're one in more than that. When Jesus came to earth, earth, the focus of their oneness became the oneness of life and purpose between the Father and the Son. The Son came to exhibit the life of God and the purpose of the Father. The life of the Father was in the Son, and the Son was accomplishing the purposes of the Father through His ministry. I know this because Jesus says in John chapter 14, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Jesus was doing the ministry, but he was doing the ministry of the Father so much so that his life and purpose could be synonymous with the Father's work. So when I bring this back and I think, okay, If the Father and the Son are one in life and purpose, and then Jesus says, I want them to be one with us, I think at least Jesus is saying, I want them to be one with us in life and purpose. I want them to live in such a way that our life is flowing through them, through the Holy Spirit, and the work they do is our work. That's why we're the body of Christ. The hands, the feet, the eyes, the ears, the, 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 the heart. We are the, the body of Christ, fulfilling the mission of Christ. So the existence of the church, our lives, and the purpose of our lives is so united because we have one life and one purpose. It's the same life and purpose of Almighty God. We are one with the Father and the Son because the same life and the same purpose that we have, that, that, that they have, is in us through the Spirit. You say, how do we have the same life and purpose? Because God dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you, giving you, the, giving you life from God and the same purpose that God has. So Jesus says the reason why they're one The reason why I I want them to be one is so they can have the same life and the same purpose that God has. Church, think about that. You have the same life and the same purpose that comes from God. Third reason for our unity is found in verse 22. He says, the glory that I have given, that you have given me, I have given them. This is another thing. I read this and I'm like, oh my word, what does this mean? The glory... That God the Father gave Jesus is the same glory that Jesus has given us. 
Now, I know there's a few things that can't mean. It can't mean that we become God. All right? So it can't be that. We don't, we're not little gods. So again, let me just preface what I'm about to say by saying this is not an exhaustive understanding of what this phrase may mean. I just want to give us something to think about. Theologians struggle with this, okay? I got about nine commentaries that I used, and they all just admitted, yeah, this is hard. When D.A. Carson says this is hard, I'm like, uh, I don't know if I'm going to get it. <laughs> it's hard. I think about the first time that I'm told in, in the book of John about the glory of the Son. And it's in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So I think, okay, the word glory has to have the idea of grace and truth in John's mind. It's how he started the manifestation of Jesus in his book, talking about the, the grace and truth that is manifested in Jesus. So... At least, church, at least, John is saying, and Jesus is praying, the same grace and truth that, that you gave me to manifest, I'm giving it to my people to manifest. I want my people, I want these that I'm praying for to manifest my glory, to manifest your glory, Father, full of grace and truth. I want my church to be a church full of grace and truth, just like me. You can think about it as presence. Just as the Father's presence was with the Son full of grace and truth, so the Son's presence full of grace and truth is with us. The Son's presence through the Spirit is with us, revealing the Son's grace and truth. Let me say that again. Jesus comes revealing to the world the grace and truth of the glory of God. Through the Spirit, that work is continuing in the church. Our job now is to display the glory of God with grace and truth. Of course, when I think about how Jesus did this, how did Jesus demonstrate the grace and truth of the glory of God. It's really amazing because he does it in the opposite way that every other person of power would have done it. Jesus did it humbly. He did it gently. He did it sacrificially. Ultimately at the cross. You know, some people try to make Jesus out to be this manly man who, you know, they, they talk about when he, he flipped over tables and he, he and not that G Jesus wasn't a manly man. I mean, he's a carpenter. So, I mean, he was a manly man. He knew how to build stuff. And I mean, right there, that's more manly than me. Just right off the top. He knew how to build stuff. I'm out. Um, but they try to, sometimes they paint Jesus in this light that Jesus went around all the time flipping over tables and money changers. And that was a rare instance. The totality of the ministry of Jesus was one of humility. It was one of gentleness. 
It was one of mercy and, and grace. Yes, there was a time where it was like, okay, it's time to get serious and have some righteous anger. But the totality of Jesus' ministry was about sacrifice. It was about servanthood. It was about mercy. It was about meekness. Not weakness. I didn't say weakness. I said meekness. So if that is the way that Jesus displayed the glory of God's grace and truth, what does that say about us? How should we display it? Should the primary ministry of our lives to be running around flipping over tables? Should we be cussing at people we don't agree with? Or sharing a post on Facebook that cusses because it says something we agree with? I got real quiet real quick. <laughs> Is that the attitude we should have? I'm not saying there's not a time to be like, we're, we're planting our feet right here and we're not moving. Don't, don't, do, do not mischaracterize what I'm saying. What I am saying is, though, when you look at the totality of the ministry of Jesus, what characterized it? It wasn't flipping over tables. It was touching lepers. It was playing with kids. It was talking to the outcast. Eating dinner with sinners. He flipped over tables. But that was not the characterization, the overall characterization of his ministry. So when it comes to us, we need to ask ourselves, am I displaying that same humility? Am I displaying that same gentleness? Am I displaying that same mercy? Am I displaying that same sacrificial love? Because that's how we're going to display the grace and the truth of the glory of God. So I think at least in part, Jesus is praying, Lord, I have given them my grace and my truth. And, and that's the glory you gave me. That's the glory I'm giving them. And they got to manifest it the same way. Laying down our lives. Us for them, not us against them. The Teenagers in Refuge heard me say that a million times last year. David said it a million times as well. It is us for the lost, not us against the lost. If you're a Republican, the Democrats are not your enemy. They're not. They're broken, lost, depraved people, not all of them, some of them, who need Jesus. Democrats, the Republicans are not your enemy. They're broken, lost, depraved people who need Jesus. And what we are called to do is to display, display the grace and truth of the glory of God in such a way that they see that Calvary Hill Baptist Church is different than the rest. That we're doing it differently. That we're going to be united and the things that could separate us, we're not going to let separate us. And we're going to display that grace and that truth in such a way that the world sees that we're different. Y'all know, know that's the biggest divide in our country right now. It's Republican and Democrat. Republican and Democrat, Republican and Democrats. All, anytime anybody speaks on TV, everything's couched in that division. I get nauseated by it, especially when the church does it. 
Now, I'm not saying there's not things for the Democrats to say the Republicans are doing wrong. I'm not saying there's things the Republicans can't say the Democrats are doing wrong. The question is, how are we doing it? And especially, how is the church doing it? Because some people you're talking about may be your brothers and sisters in Christ. So how are you displaying the unity and the oneness of the gospel even when you're disagreeing with your brothers and sisters in Christ who are across the aisle politically? Maybe a little diatribe. But I believe with all my heart that is the Spirit of God. Then lastly, Jesus prayed for the result of our unity. This is why we've got to do this. Jesus says both in verse 20 and 23, so that the world may know and believe you sent me. Why, are we, why do we got to do it this way? Why do we need to have this gentleness and this humility and this sacrifice and this unity that comes around the gospel? Because it is a verification that Jesus came from the Father. I do, I'm not saying that. Jesus is saying that. I'm not trying to manipulate us into unity. Jesus is basically giving the world permission to judge the, the, the validity. That's what I was looking for. To judge the validity of Jesus' ministry based upon the unity of his people. Let me say that again. Jesus is basically giving the permission of the world to judge the validity of Jesus based upon his people's unity around the gospel. If we can't unify around the gospel, what does that say about Jesus? What kind of gospel is this? If we have a gospel that we can't unify around and push everything else around off to the side, then what kind of gospel is it? This is the purpose of our unity. Our gospel mission relies in large part on our unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson. I wanted to quote him there because I didn't want people to say that's what Neil said. That's what D.A. Carson says. He says it. So our gospel mission relies in large part on our unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, we church cannot fulfill our, our mission as Calvary Hill Baptist Church, this local body. We cannot fulfill our mission if we are not unified around the gospel. If we let things divide us that should not divide us, we, our mission will fail. And people will judge this church and say, what kind of gospel do they have that they can't unify around it? What kind of Jesus do they serve? Just as our unity, as we sang just as our display that we are Christ's disciples is based on our love, so too this unity is a compelling explanation to the world, the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 23 goes on and says, and loved, the, and loved them as you loved me. I want them to be one so that it demonstrates you love them like you love me. That's a powerful statement. Listen, church, when we imitate the unity of the Father and the Son, as we should, we are demonstrating to the world that we are loved by the Father just as the Father loves the Son. What? When we imitate the, the unity that Jesus and the Father have together, when we are displaying God's glory, the glory of His grace and truth, in, in the way that we should, with the, with the supremacy being the gospel, when we do that, we are telling the world that God loves us like He loves His Son, Jesus. 
We are his family. You know, Jesus is called the son of God, right? Guess what Jesus calls me? A son of God. Now, that's insane to me. That is insane. If it weren't true. Jesus says, I am the son of God. And Neil Salmon is a son of God. Now, I'm not a son of God by right. I'm not a son of God by divinity. I'm a son of God by adoption. Because of the gospel. So when I display the unity of the gospel, I am displaying that I am a son of God. And God loves me like he loves his one begotten son, Jesus. Our unity reveals that we are sons and daughters of the Father, church. It reveals that we believe the gospel. It reveals that we are unified around something that is more powerful than anything else in the universe. It reveals that we are loved by God. I wrote this statement. It was very convicting when I typed it. It was one of those things, Brother James, I'm sure you can relate, where you type something out and then you got to stop and really pray about what you just typed out. Because you're like, yeah, I typed that out and that's a great sentence, but um, I'm not really following this the way I should. This is God's family. So how dare we cause division and disunity in it? You are not the head of this family. I am not the head of this family. God is the head of this family. I don't have the right to cause disunity. It's not my family. I'm not the father. I am acting in rebellion to my father when I cause disunity on things that are less than the gospel. So let me end with this. Because Jesus is praying this, it will come true. This is the crazy thing. If anybody else was praying this, we'd have to be like, well, you know, what, what, how will the Father answer it? But when Jesus prays it, guess what we know for certain? The Father's going to say, yes and amen, son. So we know for a fact that this kind of oneness will come to pass. Now, it may just not come to pass until Jesus comes back. But when Jesus comes back, there will be a oneness of his church around the gospel that we can only imagine. Everything that we've talked about today, not only will it be a spiritual reality, but it would be manifested and lived out perfectly. On the new earth, we will have a perfect expression of our unity with God and with one another around the gospel and the glory of God. So our motivation, church, is to look at what will be the ultimate end of the church and say, let's let the future reach into the present and let's start manifesting that now. Let's live this out today. So guess what that means, church? 
we got to start praying like this. There, that's where the power starts coming from to do this, is to start praying like this. Dear Jesus, make us one. Make us one. We want to be one in life and purpose around the gospel, just, just like Jesus, just like you and the Father are. We want to be, just, we want to be one with you just like that. Jesus, thank you for giving your glory to us in such a way that we now can manifest your grace and your truth in this lost world so that the world can see that, Jesus, you came from the Father and that your gospel is everything. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for adopting us into your family. May we live out the reality of that adoption and that family unity. God, make Calvary Hill Baptist Church one like this. Oh, Lord, we will have disagreements on a whole host of things. And they're good to talk about. And maybe we can hash some things out and come to some common ground and some common understanding. But, Lord, there are going to be times where we can't. There's going to be times that we won't. Lord, may our unity around the gospel be supreme over all of that. The truth is, church, we are not nearly as right on the things we think we're right about. Now, this is hard for me to say. It's difficult for me to say. I like to be right about things. Even theological things. I, I, Brother James has stood in this pulpit and studied and, and, and preached to you, but he'll be the first one to admit. I'm preaching to the best of my understanding and the best of my knowledge. But the truth is, there's going to be things I find out when Jesus comes back that I wasn't quite right about. One of those isn't the gospel, by the way. But a whole host of other things, I very well may be wrong. So I better not let any of that stuff come between me and my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because I might be wrong about it. I feel this deeply this morning. I feel it because I love this church. I feel it because I see what's going on in our country and around the world. I feel this deeply. I'm broken for the Ukrainian church. Broken for their churches that have gotten bombed. And our brothers and sisters in Christ who have, who have died. And guess what? If we sat them down, we probably wouldn't agree with everything the Ukrainian church teaches. But you know what? The essentials matter. Because we may just have to cover up in some leaves and some branches and snuggle up next to each other for life and purpose. And some of the other things that we thought were really important might not quite be as important in those moments.